Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me is my co-host, Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine. Hello, Bill. Happy Victory Day over Europe. Oh, yeah. E.E. Day, 75 years, Ward. Yeah, 75 years ago, and uh, the Russians call it Den Pobedi, or Victory Day. But uh, this is a big anniversary. We're now we're now starting those 75th anniversary things for we, we actually we've been doing them for a while now, right? But big uh, World War II anniversaries, um, battle anniversaries, and now coming up on victory anniversaries. And the first one being VE Day today, and then uh, in the in the fall we'll get to, or late summer we'll get to uh, VJ Day. So this is uh, a time to celebrate 75 years of that victory um, while we. Uh, while we battle with the, the current uh, crisis that we're all facing of uh, COVID-19. What do, what do the Russians call it? Jen Pabetti? Dien. Dien Pabetti. Oh, Dien. Dien Pabetti. Dien Pabetti, yep. Victory Day. And, uh, you know, it was, it was interesting because I was having a conversation with uh, Commander David Coles, who's over in uh, Europe in, in Rota, just finished up as a tour of one of the uh, DDGs that's forward deployed in Rota. And uh, he was talking about he's written a piece for us about how those ships have been protecting themselves from COVID-19 on board and how they're running a quarantine before they go on a deployment. But those uh, ships and some others have done a surface action group deployment up to the Barents Sea. And 15 years ago, Victory Day, uh, President Bush came to uh, Moscow. I was a naval attache in Moscow at the time. Uh, President Bush came to Moscow. There were like 55 heads of state who came to that big event, the 60th anniversary of Victory Day. But nowadays, uh, the relationship with the Russians is much different than it was 15 years ago. Instead of doing, you know, ship uh, U.S. Navy ship visits to Russian ports, we're having these shows of force up uh, close to the Russian homeland that, you know, to send a deterrent message to the Russians. So the world has changed again in the last 15 years. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, we had Admiral Fogo at the annual meeting and he was speaking to some of those threats uh, most recently. Um, and again, that's the beauty of Naval Institute membership is you get to hear these things from people like Admiral Fogo and you get to stay up to date. In terms of some up to date stuff, uh, speaking of COVID-19 and, and things like how's the fleet responding, what we know now in terms of the Naval Academy is Plebe Summer is going to start basically on time, which is June 25th, and they're going to go into a two-week lockdown isolation period and then do a five-week training period after that until reform, I guess, if, if, if we're going to do a face-to-face and not continue distance learning into the fall semester. So as we've mentioned before on the show, we enjoy during Plebe Summer when each platoon of the 30 platoons comes by our headquarters at Beach Hall and we get to give them a 45 minutes of air conditioning, a Gatorade, and a Cliff Bar, and talk about the history of the Naval Institute, including the fact that Admiral Warden of Warden Field fame is our founder, and he was superintendent of the Naval Academy at that time. So it's our chance to introduce the brand new future Naval officers to us, and we're hoping we're going to be able to do that this summer in some form, but we do not know uh, at this point time what that's going to look like so what we do know is plebe summer so if you're a parent who who's listening and maybe you know already or uh somebody who's interested in the the status of your incoming plebe plebe summer is scheduled to happen on time on june 25th and uh, they'll go into that two-week isolation period so bill you rightly ask 
how are we going to ensure that these folks don't become, you know, COVID positive along the way? So I think the answer is testing, 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 right? So it's going to have to be a closed loop ecosystem and, and have some means of, of testing people periodically during that time. And I would imagine that in the off chance that somebody shows up positive, that they either jettison that person, immediately retest everybody else, or they just say, stop the, the program and everybody goes home. So um, this is going to be a little bit of a, of a laboratory. You know, it, it's, it's uh, the first venture in a COVID-19 world for trying to return to some semblance of normalcy and keep pressing on. Because as we know, there is a pipeline. The pipeline starts at accession sources like OCS and Great Lakes and the Naval Academy. And so we got to keep going. Um, so obviously we'll be watching what happens here. And since we're co-located, we generally like to keep the audience uh, updated on what's happening, particularly in the yard. Um, and then Megan also, uh, Megan Eckstein had an item in USNI News this morning about the valet at the White House, who a, a sailor who, who came up positive for coronavirus, much to the displeasure, outright anger of President Trump. Um, so, you know, the challenges, quote unquote, of, of COVID-19 continue. Yeah, they definitely do. We had our uh, second editorial board meeting uh, at a distance on use, using GoToMeeting on Wednesday. So this is we did the, uh, the April uh, ed board meeting. We did the May ed board meeting now uh, at a distance. Our ed editorial board chairman, Brendan Stickles, uh, commander, he works uh, for Vice President Pence on, on uh, the vice president's staff. And because uh, he's had some COVID-19 in his family, uh, he every time he goes back to visit family, he comes back and is in a two-week uh, quarantine period. So he's largely, almost entirely working remotely because of that fact, right? So these are the kinds of things that uh, impact uh, personnel and readiness and and how people can get back to work or not get back to work. It's, it's all uh, very complicated. When you mentioned Brendan, I just got to mention that on the go-to meeting, he looked like Ted Kaczynski. I mean, he, he's an active duty commander um, and he has long hair and a beard, uh, which was, uh, you know, kind of funny and, uh, uh, again, a sign of the times. Right. A sign of the times, no doubt. Well, uh, let's let's move to our guest. Um, you know, hopefully by now, uh, most of our listeners have received in the mail the May issue of Proceedings or they've seen it online if they're uh, members, if they're online members only. Uh, the, the cover picture is a beautiful picture of the hospital ship USNS Comfort sailing past the uh, Statue of Liberty on uh, 30 March when she went up to assist with the uh, medical problems up there in New York City. Uh, part of the May issue is always the, the uh, in fact, a big part, the, the lion's share of the May issue is the Naval Review of the previous year. And this year... Um, like every year, we always have the Naval Review, the Marine Corps Review, and the Aviation and Weapons Review, and we have the Merchant Marine and World Maritime Review. And so our guest today is Shashi Kumar, who for the last 17 years has written that Merchant Marine and World Maritime Review. Uh, it is a particularly interesting one this year because so much has changed in the world maritime uh, shipping market in the marketplace, in the industry, and in the U.S. industry uh, as well. And much had changed in 2019 before we even got to the COVID-19 outbreak. So welcome to the Proceedings Podcast, Shashi. Uh, it's great to have you on the show, and thank you again for writing this uh, year's review. 
Thank you, Bill. So let me just start off with a little bit of the, you know, you, your article starts off with the, you know, very high altitude. Look, the world maritime community has experienced many difficult commercial and operational challenges over the years, but nothing compares to the enormity or the scope experienced since the spring of 2019 with no immediate end in sight. A confluence of a series of epoch-making market disruptions, some planned and some not, much to the industry's agony, has been without parallel in recent history. So tell our listeners a, a bit about, they're, they're all you know very aware of how COVID-19 can impact the world maritime industry. Uh, we've seen that on cruise ships. Uh, that was really the start of the headlines in the United States were cruise ships with Americans uh, on board who were sidelined and quarantined by COVID-19. But what are some of the other things that have happened in the world shipping industry over the past year? So looking back to early 2019, the industry was facing two major, or I would say significant unknowns out there. One being Brexit. What would be the impact of the British departure from the European Union and the massive disruption it would cause within the shipping industry based on that change? Now, when you look back, it looks like you know, small potatoes right now uh, compared to COVID-19. But then even bigger than the Brexit issue was a mandate from the International Maritime Organization that the fuel oil used by ships should switch over to uh, sulfur content of 0.5%, which was a very radical change from the level of sulfur content that was being used until then, until 1st of January 2020. So there was a lot of uncertainty at that point as to how the industry would deal with that mandated change from IMO. The expenses involved would be phenomenal. And not only that, the, the time involved, you know, taking a ship out of its operations, fitting in the necessary components so that the vessel can switch over to consuming low sulfur fuel oil. All that would mean somewhere between four to six weeks of disruption. And when you have to do this for the entire fleet of commercial vessels, many of which were waiting for the last minute to do that, uh, you can well imagine what would be the consequences. And um, not only that, there was significant uncertainty as to what would be the price of this low sulfur fuel oil once it became mandatory to, to be used. Uh, at that point, you know, I'm, I'm talking about a year ago, they were talking about a differential of almost three to $400 between the traditional uh, fuel that was being used versus the low sulfur fuel oil. Three to four hundred dollars per ton. Per three ton. to four hundred dollars per ton. Okay. And so, how much for a, for a, an average uh, commercial ship making a trans-Pacific, uh, you know, journey, maybe Hong Kong to Los Angeles, for example? Uh, what would be the cost differential in in switching to that low sulfur fuel? Well, I think. It's very hard to quantify that because of you know it depends on the size of the ship and what speed she's she's um, moving, but it's fair enough to say that um, 
when I used to sail on the Trans-Pacific container runs, uh, my ship would burn easily about 150 tons per day, 24 hours. So when you talk about 400 times 150 tons, that's a lot of money there. Is indeed a lot of money. So, so the conversion to the new fuel was having, uh, or the ability to burn the new fuel cost the ships having to go through some sort of an engineering conversion, or they'd have to install uh, scrubbers if they wanted to continue to burn the higher sulfur fuel. So that was an expensive conversion cost or maintenance cost. And then the, the actual higher cost of the low sulfur fuel was a significant cost itself. So how did that, how was that borne out? Did the did the predictions for what the cost differential did they did they uh, hold up, or did it turn out in the end to be actually a, a lower cost to run with the the higher the lower sulfur fuel than was originally expected? Well, if there is a happy story to share at this point for the industry, it's that um, the the calamity that they were anticipating has not happened. If anything, the the price differential is well within. Um, what they were expecting, and to the point where, and especially given the huge excess supply of oil that's there right now, um, the differential now is very low. I would say it's probably less than $100. I have not checked the rates recently, but it's definitely a lot less than what were anticipated or expected. Yeah. So right now, uh, our listeners will be curious you know, how COVID-19 is impacting the industry. Of, of course, as you pointed out, the low cost of oil, the low price of oil, and the fact everyone's been seeing that in a couple of places, the futures market for oil even went dip below zero. So there was a negative cost right, for producers of oil and a lot of the excess capacity to store oil either uh, in land-based tanks or on super tankers has been completely mopped up, right? So what's happening right now in the the um, very large container ships or very sorry the very large uh, fuel oil tankers uh, that are carrying oil around the world? Well, so the oil tankers is a very interesting case. I mean, obviously every sector of the industry has been affected, but if you talk specifically about the oil tankers. Uh, and the large tankers that you talked about, they in particular are doing well right now because of the surplus of oil out there. What has happened is anybody who has access to this huge quantity of oil that they buy and sell in the international markets, they are dealing with a situation where they have no storage facility on land. An ideal place where you can st store oil is these large crude oil tankers. And these vessels, the large crude oil tankers, what we call very large crude carriers, um, typically around, you know, carrying around 250,000 tons plus, or even the ultra large crude carriers, which would be carrying well over 300,000 um, tons of cargo. These vessels can be used for storing oil for long periods of time. All of a sudden, the demand for these vessels have gone up dramatically, as a result of which the, the charter hire, the cost to rent these vessels on a daily basis for a certain number of months, those prices have gone through the roof. So a, a VLCC, especially one of these old VLCCs, which I could typically charter for 
say thirty or forty thousand dollars, now is costing well over two hundred thousand dollars. So we saw some coverage from USNI News on what you're talking about, Shashi, and um, there was an associated image with a whole bunch of super tankers hanging off in the anchorages off of Long Beach. And we noticed, I live in Annapolis, that as you look into the bay, that you could see them, you know, waiting to get into Baltimore, just hang out in the anchorages uh, the, by the Bay Bridge. So when I see these things, I, I kind of go to the crew um, and not having ever been a merchant mariner. Does this change what they thought they would be doing? Is this like being extended on a normal cruise? Do you get to go on and off the ship? What is life like for the merchant mariners in this circumstance? Typically on a ship that is used as a storage tanker, you will not be going out. You stay on the ship continuously during your contract period. So if it's a contract for two months or one month or whatever is the duration of your contract, you stay on that ship, you would never step on land. So you you know that's what you're going to do. But now, did, on top of that, under the COVID-19 conditions right now, there is absolutely no way you would be going out. So did, did any of these ships like go on deployment, as it were, thinking they were going to deliver the crude and wind up just holding it? Did that happen at all? Yes, that has happened for some ships. So some ships were intended to do that, um, whereas some ships are what I would say the older vintage uh, cargo ships, uh, contain, sorry, uh, oil tankers. They would not typically find trading opportunities. They are used primarily as a storage tanker. That's all what they would do. You would bring the ship, anchor the ship, simply it would store the oil for long periods of time. So let's let's uh, switch now to the uh, the container ship market. So we know with the significant impact to the global economy, as the economy has slowed in some places, you know, almost to a screeching halt, uh, the trade in goods, the 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 uh, amount of stuff that people are buying, uh, has dropped, you know, precipitously. So container ships that were bringing lots and lots of containers from a place like China or Vietnam to the West Coast or maybe from uh, Germany to uh, to Asia or vice versa. Uh, so what's the drop been like for those ships, the demand drop? Well, the, the estimates are changing almost on a daily basis. I think it's, uh, it's fair to say that we are pretty close to the, the bottom falling off at this point, you know, to the point where they are estimating losses in billions and not millions any longer. What began as a crisis in supply of raw materials has obviously switched over to a crisis in demand as well. So you're looking at a crisis in demand as well as crisis in supply. And with many major importing nations like ours, the cargo that comes to our ports, the, the, the discharge ports like Los Angeles or New York or somewhere, uh, the movement of the cargo to interior locations, they are disrupted. You know? I mean, cargos are not moving because the demand has fallen off. People are not buying. People are not shopping, obviously, because the stores are not open. So we have those kind of scenarios taking place on one side. And if you if you look back like a month ago, when China started opening up things and started manufacturing things, they had difficulty finding containers to export their goods 
all the empty containers were stuck here and Europe and other countries, as a result of which they really sent some of their bigger ships, the, the container operators, so that they can carry these empty containers back to places like China, which could then be loaded and reshipped. But in general, we are looking at significant uh, decline in market performance and the liner sector, which is these container shipping operators, they are anticipating a very bad year for 2020. So how tight are the margins in the industry? What are the resonant effects that our listeners should understand about what could happen to fleets, what could happen to longshoremen, what could happen to the the ports? I mean, what, what's the resonant impact potentially with this current situation? And how many years would it take to recapture what we could potentially lose? Well, that's 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 a very interesting question. So if you talk purely about the industry, one of the basic fundamental problems with the industry has been the issue of supply versus demand. In other words, the supply of ships versus the demand for these vessels. And these things move in cycles, obviously. So it's sort of, you know, you, you talk about a cyclical industry. The shipping industry is a very classic example of that. And the, the tanker market, which we talked about first, for example, let me start with that. So we were facing a situation where there was excess capacity in the market. The rates were down uh, because of the excess capacity. And the ship owners in general have a tendency that uh, they believe that if they build new vessels, if they have the capacity, uh, and if they can match that with their projections, they can make big money. You know, I mean, if you anticipate the market to go up, say, a year from now, they start building ships accordingly. And when the market goes up, there you go. You can make your money out of that. But unfortunately, everybody else thinks the same way. So everyone else does the same thing. And in general, the, the capacity, the excess capacity in the market has been persisting over a, a long period of time. In the last two or three years, the tanker owners have exercised a slightly better discipline as a result of which the excess capacity has been diminishing. And then now, all of a sudden, when there is significant demand for these old tankers, because there is a need for storage capacity, they are finding themselves to be in an excellent position. Now, having said that, Okay, right now they are in great position. However, you know, once the demand for the storage purpose is gone, things are not going to be that great for them, especially because OPEC has decided to cut back their oil production. So right now the industry is doing well, uh, if you ask the average tanker owner, and like everything else, even the smaller ships are doing well because what has happened is if you don't find enough big tankers, you would move into the smaller tankers and then even the smaller ones and maybe to the level of using the bigger barges to store your oil at this point. So that's from the perspective of the tanker sector. It's okay for the time being, but it's going to probably go down a little bit. As far as the, the liner ships are concerned, the, the big container ships and so forth, it will definitely take well over a year to recover from what they've lost. And the other sector that we have not talked about, the dry bulk sector, 
which carries commodities like iron ore and fertilizers and grains and so forth, has also gone through a similar cycle. The industry was really on a recovery phase last year, and the expectation was that the recovery will continue in 2020 and that this will be a great year for them. But we are far from it. Obviously, the COVID-19 has caused significant uh, problems for them. Now, for any ship that's moving uh, overseas, so uh, whether it's a, uh, a a bulk, you know, container, a bulk ship, or a container ship, or uh, an oil container ship, you know, an, an oil tanker, uh, when they get to a foreign port, if they leave Los Angeles and go to Hong Kong, or or vice versa, when they get there, are they quarantined on board the ship, or the the crews are not leaving the ships? They're they're staying on board completely. Okay, you touched upon a very important aspect of this and probably the most problematic aspect facing the industry right now. On an average, worldwide, approximately 100,000 crew members are being relieved. So, in other words, certain number is going back, certain number is coming on board the ship. No crew changes have happened in the last month and a half or so. So you are talking about well over 150,000 people worldwide stuck on ships who would be or who should be going home and having their vacation at this point. Uh, in addition to the, the very human issue out here, there's also a major safety issue, right? I mean, when you're on a ship for a certain period of time and you're looking forward to your vacation to go back and spend time with your family, and when that doesn't happen, it obviously affects the performance, your ability to rise to the occasion and deal with the challenges and so forth. So we have a very bad situation right now with all these people stuck on ships for months together. Mind you, on board the American ships, we typically have two months contract, maybe at most a four month contract. Whereas with foreign crew, people are on board a ship for sometimes six months nine months, or even one-year contracts. So these are people who have put in significant amount of time on board those ships who are looking for the next opportunity to go home and you know, set, their, set their feet on firm land, which has not happened yet. So there, there are steps being undertaken right now. The IMO, the International Maritime Organization, is appealing to various nations to... Oh, uh, provide opportunities for crew change and so on and so forth. As you, as you point out, so there are crew members that are stuck on ships who've been extended perhaps past their contract because they can't get off safely right now. Uh, but then there's also people who, looking for work or ready to go back to work who were at the start of this crisis were back home. I, I 20 years ago, I had a good friend who was a uh, first mate on a container ship and his ship was regularly going back and forth between San Diego, Hawaii, Hong Kong, those were his major ports. And his his contracts were generally two months at a time. So he'd be gone for two months, back for two months, gone for two months. But as you say, if he was home uh, you know, back in Maine and when this started, then he wouldn't be able to go back to work. And his counterpart who's on that same ship wouldn't be able to get home. So these are things that the IMO, you said, is working with international governments to try to solve this and allow crews to get back on ships or off ships, as, as it were. Yes, the IMO actually came out with their protocols, I think, um, 
couple of days ago on the 5th of May, if I'm not mistaken. But well before that, uh, some of the major nations have, they came up with their own protocols. So for example, the EU came up with their own protocols and many other nations, you know, so they have their own protocols as to uh, something similar to what we have here under the CDC provisions. So 14 days of quarantine, the testing protocols and uh, and then the use of PPEs and so on and so forth. So those those provisions are there worldwide right now, and the mariners have to go through that process, including our own mariners. You know, so what we did here within the U.S. all commercial ships they put an end. They they stopped crew changes for 30 days, and that 30 day period just ended, I believe, last week. So they are going to start resuming crew changes now. Uh, so that those people who are who been on board the ships and completed their term can go home and new crew can come on board. Now we do have some ships which are which do not call US ports. And there has to be special provisions made for crew rotations in foreign ports. So we're talking we've talked about crews and ships and, and what's happening at sea. How about the effects of COVID nineteen on the ports? On page ninety-two, there's a picture of line handlers tying up a container ship. So, you know, we've heard about meat shortages here and how it might affect us at the, at the grocery store. Probably your average listener is not intimately aware of how they get their t-shirts and their automobiles and all the other stuff. The, the dependence the average American has on the shipping industry. So what is happening in the ports in response to COVID-19 that might impact the ability of goods to get ashore and how are the shipyards or the, 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 the ports having to deal with this in a way that's proportional or analogous to what the crews are having to do at sea? Every port here in the U.S. has been reporting a decline in their cargo turnover. So it has affected cargo operations. And in our case, in this country, vast majority of the ports uh, they are landlord ports. Here. They own the port, and they they lease the facility to port operators or terminal operators. And the terminal operators they sign a contract saying that we will handle X number of containers per month or so many thousand tons of cargo a month, and so on and so forth. As the cargo volumes drop, if I'm the leasing entity, if I lease the port or the terminal for whatever millions of dollars. If I'm not meeting those volumes, there is a penalty. So we are looking at a serious situation where many of these port and terminal operators are unable to meet their contractual requirements. They are not able to employ the people that they want because obviously there's not enough cargo work and not enough ships calling the port. So this is this is really you know widespread the impact of this this particular virus, you know, the pandemic. So and as I said earlier, you know, I'm seeing new statistics coming out from ports on a daily basis as to what has been the impact. So again, the question is, it's easy to break something. It's harder to build it back up. How tight are the margins that these ports are operating under? You know, if I have to hire a skilled workforce because I'm not meeting my contractual obligations and I have no buffer in terms of money in the bank, um, how how devastating can that be long term for the entire shipping industry? 
Well, the, the workforce, in terms of the supply of the workforce, they are there. It's not that the people are going away. The workforce is there. But having the resources, having the money, that's the issue. The American Association of Port Authorities just released, I think, a report a couple of days ago talking about the kind of financial assistance that they would like to get from the federal government, which might be in billions of dollars in terms of bringing back to uh, normalcy in operations. So that's what they're reaching out to for some kind of financial support at this point, whereby they can resume the operations and bring back the, the stevedores and other line handlers like you talked about earlier. So br bringing back normalcy to their operations, they need support at this point. That's what they're asking for right now. I'm just thinking about Pascagoula where uh, the shipyard workers were summarily laid off with no solution in sight and they all wandered up to uh shreveport to be uh blackjack dealers you know and it was hard to get yeah. them back after that right i mean this is what we're facing as we say hey 355 ship navy uh right. having the shipbuilding infrastructure uh on the in the wake of a downturn is is harder than we might think absolutely yeah i mean another case in point is um you know part of my responsibility is maritime education nationwide we have in addition to the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy, the Kings Point Academy, we have six other state academies. Every one of these campuses is shut down right now. And every one of them, the, the graduation has been either canceled or postponed indefinitely. So there's a lot of uncertainty. So I have approximately about 1,200 new entry-level officers and engineers who are you know, completely uncertain what's going to be their future. Well, and as you mentioned, the the draw of Merchant Marine against traditional Navy, and I'm thinking of why would you go to Annapolis or Kings Point or, or Maine Maritime? I just, I'm thinking back to when we were, I'm sure Bill was in the same thing when he was looking to go to college. The, the pitch from the Maritime was predictability. They're like, if you go in the Navy, you don't know when you're going on cruise, you don't know when you're coming home. But with us... A, we're paid better, and part B is I know when I'm going to see and when I'm coming back, right? So that's been shot to hell in the face of this pandemic. You are absolutely right, yes. The CARES Act, which uh, provides for the payroll protection plan, a lot of small businesses uh, and even some large business, right, have taken advantage of that to keep people on their payroll. Uh, is the shipping industry, U.S.-flagged uh, companies, or as Ward was pointing out, the shore-based infrastructure, are those companies able to take advantage of the CARES Act? Is there any money uh, for to, to help keep the, the maritime industry afloat during this time? We have received uh, within the Department of Transportation for the shipping industry very limited funds for um, those, those sort of payments. Uh, we received some funds for the educational purposes but for the industry in general, there was very limited money in that first round of uh, appropriations. But we anticipate additional um, funding availability opportunities. Well, we're, we're uh, running out of time. I wanted to ask one more question because it's, it's one that comes up in the pages of proceedings quite often, uh, and that is the Jones Act. So it's, I think, 100 years since the passage of the Jones Act, which requires, uh, and I'm not an expert on it, but that uh, cargo that's transported between U.S. ports, so for example, New York to Savannah, 
has to be on a U.S. flagged ship, right? It can't be transported by a Panamanian flagship or a Mauritanian flagship or a, a Costco ship, for example, a, a China China offshore uh, shipping company. Uh, so, so talk a little bit about uh, the Jones Act and what what kinds of conversations are happening within the maritime sector in the United States now for updating that, for repealing it, for you know, is there an appetite in Congress to change it at all, and and what's the impact of that act uh, on the U.S. Uh, shipping industry? Well, the the Jones Act, as you know, it's the Section 27 of the 1920 Merchant Marine Act. And yes, we are reaching the 100th year. Um, this is the bedrock of American shipping. Um, in the absence of a Jones Act, I would, you know, I don't know what will happen to the American shipping industry or what's left of it. You know, at this point, we have approximately around 200 vessels. And these, these 200 vessels and the mariners who serve on those ships, they are so crucial for this nation's economic security as well as the national security. I mean, you, we talked earlier about the average American not knowing about the role the shipping industry, the commercial shipping industry plays there in daily lives, such as you know the laptop I'm lose, using right now. How did that come here? Or the TV that I'm going to watch later on, and so on and so forth. But what's even worse is most Americans have no clue what role we play in national security. My my office, you know, I mean, the Maritime Administration, the agency that I work for, we maintain 46 ships under the ready reserve fleet. We need to be there in order to, you know, when there is a mobilization effort, we are to be there. And it, it, to sustain your surge activities, you know, when our military is called to action, we are there. And we all know the contributions made by the Merchant Marine in World War II and other subsequent wars. So my point is, the Jones Act is a is an important aspect of that that microsystem which supports our national merchant marine at this point. I don't see any changes happening to the Jones Act, and should something happen to Jones Act, it can have serious consequences for our uh, economic security as well as the national security. That's a great point. You mentioned the Ready Reserve Fleet and 46 ships that are maintained by the Maritime Administration. Uh, what's the average age of those ships? It's 45 years. And the fact that these 45, 46 ships are able to operate, you know, hats off to the people who work on those ships because they are all, to me, they're floating wonders. I, I think you're right. And, and in the pages of the May proceedings, we have another piece on the hospital ships, which are USNS ships, so they're manned by civil uh, mariners, uh, so merchant mariners, civil mariners. So the the uh, uh, medical crews, when they mobilize those ships, are active duty people or reservists who've been recalled to active duty. But the uh, the crews that actually run those ships and navigate those ships and man the uh, engineering spaces uh, are civil mariners. Um, and as uh, Sal Mercagliano, who wrote the piece about the two hospital ships, he pointed out, as you said, just about the Ready Reserve Fleet, those ships are 44 years old, and they have, I think it's 600-pound steam plants, which are very outmoded uh, uh, engineering plants in, in this day and age. 
And so these are uh, old ships. Uh, they're key capabilities for uh, the military in times of major mobilization. And it's uh, an area that is going to require some renewed investment if we want to keep those capabilities, whether it's hospital ships or the surge capacity to move the Army overseas or the Marine Corps overseas in times of need. So it's a, it's a very crucial point. And it's one that um, I've seen over the last two years is appearing in the pages of proceedings more and more as those ships get older and older that urgency is becoming, uh, you know, it's becoming more important. And and what I will say is that uh, if the DOD wants to recapitalize those ships, which are 45 plus years old, this is really an opportune time. It's a good time to buy used vessels in the international market. That's, that's a great point. Really cool point. Well, Dr. Yeah. Shashi Kumar has been our guest here for this episode of the Proceedings Podcast. His Merchant Marine Year in Review article can be found in the current issue of Proceedings, the May issue, which, as Bill said at the outset, should be hitting your mailboxes. And also the digital articles are all live right now. So, Dr. Kumar, thank you very much for being part of the Proceedings Podcast today. Thank you. Okay, that'll do it for this episode. Remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll talk to you very soon.